I'm John Strum, and this is Real Talk MS. October 30th, and we have a lot to talk about. People living with MS may find that they have problems remembering specific events, names, or even conversations. They may have trouble multitasking, and learning new material may seem to be more challenging than it once was. Some people living with MS may find that their attention span is shorter than it used to be, or that it takes them longer to process information. Learning directions can be hard, and decision-making may become more difficult. Well, these are all examples of impaired cognition, or cognitive dysfunction. Cognitive dysfunction can impact people living with relapsing-remitting MS, and it impacts almost everyone living with progressive MS. Physicians first noticed cognitive impairment in people living with MS more than 160 years ago. But a standard test to measure cognitive function in people living with MS wasn't adopted until 2001, and today, cognitive dysfunction remains widely overlooked and undertreated. That's why the National MS Society convened a working group of world-class experts, researchers among the very best and brightest in their field, to explore how cognitive dysfunction was being assessed today and to develop a set of guidelines designed to improve the process of screening and managing cognitive dysfunction in MS. My guest today is Dr. John DeLuca, the Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Kessler Foundation and the co-author of this just-published report that details the important set of new guidelines. But before we get to those new guidelines and my conversation with Dr. DeLuca, there are a few other things that you should know about. Today, I'm very proud and very happy to share a little good news about the podcast with you. Today, Real Talk MS and the Accelerated Cure Project for MS announced a first-of-its-kind collaboration designed to expand our ability to share research results and activities across the entire MS community. Now, I've talked about the Accelerated Cure Project for MS on the podcast before, and we've discussed their research initiative called I Conquer MS. I Conquer MS is a people-powered research network that gives you an opportunity to be a part of MS research in an incredibly empowering way. Instead of just asking people with MS to provide data, I Conquer MS is driven by people living with multiple sclerosis, and it really serves as a, as a kind of bridge between people living with MS and the research community. That means that you not only contribute your information— but you can suggest research topics that matter to you. It means that you can ask questions. It means that you'll receive updates on what researchers are learning from the patient-centered data that's being contributed by the iConquer MS community. And this new collaboration will make it easy for the Accelerated Cure Project to suggest topics or people for me to interview in future podcast episodes based on the research questions that are being submitted by members of the iConquer MS community. You'll even be able to listen to episodes of Real Talk MS on the iConquer MS website. So I'm thrilled to begin this new collaborative relationship with iConquer MS, 
and I'm looking forward to incorporating the feedback and participation of the MS community into the Real Talk MS podcast. Next Tuesday, November 6th, is an important day for everyone living with MS or any chronic illness in the United States, because next Tuesday is the day we get to vote in our midterm election. And as I've said to you before, health care is on the ballot. Maybe not explicitly, but make no mistake, this is going to be seen as a historic election. The choices that voters in America make on election day are going to have a huge effect on our access to health care, the cost of health care, and the protections that exist for people living with pre-existing conditions. Now, this isn't going to be a partisan rant, because I don't believe that access to quality, affordable health care should have ever become a partisan issue. Honestly, I couldn't care less about someone's political party affiliation. If you're living with a chronic medical condition, whether it's diabetes, cancer, heart disease, multiple sclerosis, or anything else, I believe that you're entitled to quality, affordable care. And I believe that you should award your vote to those legislators in Congress who've worked on your behalf. So in this election, I wanted to make it easy for everyone affected by MS to actually see whether their members of the House and the Senate had supported them. So I created the MS Congressional Report Card. I designed an algorithm that looked at all the ways that a member of Congress could have supported people living with MS, and based upon what they did or didn't do, it assigned them a letter grade. And over the past two years, there have been dozens of opportunities for a member of Congress to support people living with MS. For instance, they could have chosen to join the MS Caucus, or they could have taken a leadership role in moving important legislation forward. They may have signed on to letters to their colleagues urging them to support specific bills that offered benefit or legal protections to people affected by MS. And, of course, they could have voted for the bills that would have a positive impact on individuals and families affected by MS and oppose the bills that would cause hardship or harm to those individuals and families affected by MS. So I've made it super easy for you to check out your own members of Congress and see their MS report card. Just visit the Real Talk MS website at realtalkms.com and click on MS Congressional Report Card in the menu at the top of the page. Then you'll select the state that you live in and you'll see exactly how well your representatives and senators have supported you. And then, with that knowledge in hand, you can cast your vote. Now, please keep in mind that the MS Congressional Report Card could only issue grades to sitting members of Congress. The candidates who may be opposing them on the ballot, challenging these members of Congress, well, they haven't been in office, so they haven't been in position to do anything yet. They obviously don't have anything to grade. But as they're elected and they take their seats in Congress, they'll already know that we're going to be watching and we're going to be voting. If you're a regular Real Talk MS listener, then you've heard me say this before. There is something incredibly empowering about advocating on your own behalf. And I think that voting is the single most powerful form of advocacy. And I know that when you're living with MS, just making the effort to vote 
can be challenging. So I want to tell you about Fraser Robinson III. He was a city water plant employee who lived with MS, and he was someone who did whatever it took to make sure that he could cast his vote. Listen to how his daughter, former First Lady Michelle Obama, reminisces about how important it was for her father, living with multiple sclerosis, to make sure that his vote would be counted. I grew up in a household where voting was just something you did all the time. And my father, who had multiple sclerosis, I remember going to the polling place with him and how much effort it took for him to park his car, to get his crutches, to walk into the church basement in our local neighborhood where he voted, and to stand there holding himself up, making sure he cast his ballot. I remember my father doing this exercise every single election and not worrying about whether it was raining or snowing or whether he was tired. And I remember accompanying him on these voting excursions to that little church basement. The machines were the older ones where you click them and it would pick the candidate uh, and then you'd have to pull the lever. I would watch my dad vote and think, wow, what a special responsibility that must be and must be something important for him to take this much time out and push himself to get to the polling place. So that's one of the reasons why I don't take voting for granted. I vote in every election because voting in every election is the only way you can have your voice heard. It's not just important to vote for the president um, because a lot of stuff happens at the local level. So you have to vote every single election for your mayor, for your governor, for the people who sit on your school boards. All of that affects your daily life. So you gotta vote. You gotta vote often and you gotta vote every election. This past summer, we devoted a podcast episode to a discussion about stem cell therapy. There's just been so much misinformation and even disinformation out there that I wanted to try and provide a little more clarity about the current state of stem cell therapy in MS. And you guys have made that podcast episode one of the top three most downloaded podcast episodes of the past year. Well, in that episode, I went off on a little bit of a rant about the half-truths, the inflated claims, sometimes the out-and-out lies that are being made by for-profit stem cell clinics. Unfortunately, there are people living with MS who take these claims at face value and end up spending huge sums of money and risking their health, even risking their lives, on questionable procedures that produce very little, if anything, in the way of results. So I'm not going to take you through the various stem cell treatments for MS that are being explored today. If you'd like to learn more about them, you might want to download episode 42 of the podcast, and that should bring you up to speed. But we're talking about this subject today because last week the Federal Trade Commission got involved when they announced a settlement of their complaint against two stem cell clinics in California that advertised that their amniotic stem cell therapy could successfully treat MS, autism, stroke, and even heart attacks. One of their ads claimed that this treatment restored the sight in a 101-year-old woman who had been blind for seven years. 
and the FTC charged that there was absolutely no proof that any of these treatments worked or that any of these claims were true. Now, these two stem cell clinics had earned more than $3 million between 2014 and 2017, although earned is probably the wrong word here, because in my opinion, they stole that money. They charged people between $9,500 and $15,000 for the initial treatment, and they encouraged their patients to return for multiple follow-up treatments, what the clinics called booster treatments, at a cost of between five dollars and $8,000. The doctor who owned these two clinics, Dr. Bryn Gerald Henderson, will pay a fine representing some part of the $3 million he stole from his unsuspecting patients, and from that fine, $525,000 will be set aside for patients who may have been harmed by these bogus treatments. Stem cell therapy represents real hope for people living with MS. Hematopoietic stem cell therapy, or HSCT, is currently the subject of ongoing clinical trials, and some of the initial data coming out of these trials is very promising. But HSCT has absolutely nothing in common with so-called amniotic stem cell therapy. And today, stem cell therapy for MS has not yet been given approval by the FDA, because there's still a lot to learn. Because when lives hang in the balance, doctors have to get it right. We're going to be hearing a lot more about stem cell therapy for MS. Some of what we're going to hear will be reliable, trustworthy information. And a lot of what we're going to hear won't be. So please make it your mission to become an informed medical consumer. Consult the resources that you can trust. Don't take every word that you read in an ad or an email at face value, no matter how much you want it to be true. And make decisions about your health as though your life depended on it, because ultimately, it does. Speaking of stem cells, the stem cells from people living with MS and people living with Parkinson's disease are about to boldly go where no man has gone before. Space, the final frontier. Well, maybe not quite that far. But these stem cells are going into space. They're headed to the International Space Station, where scientists will be performing experiments to study various cell-to-cell -cell interactions in a zero-gravity environment. The launch is scheduled for May 2019, and it's a result of a collaboration between the National Stem Cell Foundation, the Summit for Stem Cell Foundation, the New York Stem Cell Foundation, and Space Tango, a company that specializes in microgravity research and commercial product development. Researchers will use induced pluripotent stem cells to produce different types of brain cells, as well as tiny artificial brains known as organoids. In addition to nerve cells, these organoids will include the immune cells that live in the brain, called microglia. And the researchers will look at the impact of microgravity in the formation of these organoids, and they'll be able to observe how microgravity affects the migration of microglia during inflammation. 
Well, aside from being awesomely cool, these experiments will hopefully expand our understanding of how and why neurodegeneration occurs. And as a card-carrying nerd, I can promise you that I will keep you updated on the status of these stem cells from the time they lift off in May 2019. The National MS Society is investing up to $330,000 in research that may not be headed for outer space, but is nonetheless cutting edge. The investment is being made to support commercial research being done by MetaRed, a biotech company located in San Francisco, and the funding will enable the company to further develop an antibody that could be a potential treatment to protect the nervous system from damage due to multiple sclerosis. The antibody was originally developed by MetaRed's co-founder, Professor Katerina Akazoglu. Professor Akasoglu and her colleagues have shown that a blood clotting factor called fibrin is deposited in the brain during the immune attack in mouse models of MS, and this fibrin directly activates the microglia, the immune cells in the brain. Well, Dr. Akasoglu's antibody inhibits fibrin. It decreases the activation of microglia, which reduces the damage to nerve fibers in mice, and this antibody doesn't appear to interfere with fibrin's blood clotting functions. The MS Society funding will enable MetaRed to make this antibody more similar to human antibodies so that it's more suitable as a potential treatment for people with MS, and to take the necessary steps to ultimately translate the discovery of this antibody into a clinical trial for people living with progressive MS. Personally, I found that cognitive dysfunction is one of the symptoms of multiple sclerosis that can have a profound impact on individuals living with MS and their families. My own experience has shown me that when someone with MS begins to exhibit signs of cognitive dysfunction, how they are, how they act, begins to change. And when that happens, it feels as though who they are begins to disappear. And that can be frightening. Yet cognitive dysfunction is something that isn't always discussed with your neurologist, and so it isn't always treated. Coming up next, we'll get into my conversation with Dr. John DeLuca, the Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Kessler Foundation, and we're going to be talking about the new recommendations from the National MS Society for Cognitive Screening and Management in MS, recommendations contained in a just-published report co-authored by my guest. Cognitive impairment is a symptom of multiple sclerosis that can have a profound impact on individuals living with MS and their families. The best way that I can explain it from my own non-scientific first-hand experience is that as someone with MS begins to exhibit signs of cognitive decline, it's as though a part of who they are begins to disappear. And while research has shown that early and ongoing cognitive assessment is important, Cognitive impairment is often overlooked and left undertreated. So the National MS Society convened a group of experts in cognitive dysfunction to review the published literature, 
reach consensus for the best strategies for screening, monitoring, and treating cognitive changes, and propose strategies to overcome the barriers to optimal care. Well, this work resulted in the National MS Society announcing a set of recommendations for cognitive screening and management in multiple sclerosis, and it's worth noting that these recommendations have also been endorsed by the Consortium of Multiple Sclerosis Centers and the International Multiple Sclerosis Cognition Society. My guest today is Dr. John DeLuca, the Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Kessler Foundation and the co-author of this important report. In fact, Dr. DeLuca was instrumental in promoting the need for these guidelines among the MS research community. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. DeLuca. Thank you very much. Maybe a good place to start our conversation is to get an idea of how prevalent cognitive impairment is among people living with MS and to understand if it affects relapsing remitting MS, primary progressive MS, secondary progressive MS, or, or all of the MS subtypes. Sure. You know, uh, overall, about up to 70% of persons with MS will show some degree of cognitive impairment. Even before the diagnosis, when the idea of clinically isolated syndrome, roughly one-third of those individuals can have cognitive impairments. In relapsing remitting, up to about 50% of persons can have cognitive problems. But when you get to the progressive forms of MS, the data show that 80 to 90% of those individuals have some form or degree of cognitive impairment. So we're talking about a problem that's very prevalent among persons with MS. And is cognitive dysfunction a progressive symptom? Does it worsen over time? Not necessarily. Again, MS is a very individualized disease, so there's going to be a lot of variability at the individual level. But it may be that persons newly diagnosed have cognitive problems, and persons uh, who are been diagnosed for years have no cognitive problems. But we do, we do know that if you have cognitive problems early on, they tend to be they tend to progress. However, it may be that you may not have cognitive problems for 10 years, and then you may start to have them. So it's very much individualized. How has cognitive dysfunction been assessed, and, and what is it about the process that has been in place, the assessment process that led to a need to develop new recommendations for screening for cognitive dysfunction? Well, it's interesting because for most of the 20th century, you know, cognitive problems have been ignored. In fact, um, medical students were told that cognitive problems were not a feature of the disease itself. It was a manifestation of something other than the disease. And it wasn't until the late 80s and early 90s that the, the data from neuropsychological studies were showing that, in fact, cognitive impairment was a feature of the disease itself. But it took a long time for this to get into clinical practice. And even today, probably about half of MS clinics in the United States do nothing for the assessment of cognitive impairment. Other, uh, another 20 or 25% simply ask the patient, which is important, but we know that patients self-report that does not necessarily correlate with actual objective cognitive impairment. So cognitive impairment has to be assessed objectively as well as to listen to patients and families to get exactly what the nature of the problem is because you can't do anything about it 
until you know what the problem is. So the idea of where we are today with these guidelines is to finally say that clinics need to actually assess objectively cognitive impairment with persons with MS. So maybe we could talk for a moment about the recommendations for screening and management that your working group has developed. Can you elaborate a little bit on what those recommendations are and what they mean for patients going to see their neurologist? Well, sure. You know, one of the recommendations early on is education and awareness. That persons with MS and their family members need more information about cognition and its impact on everyday life. We know that clinicians may need more information about cognitive changes and the impact on everyday life on their patients. So there can be a discussion. So that's really one important feature. But, but with respect to assessment and management, what's being recommended is that at baseline, that is at diagnosis, that there should be a cognitive screening. And the recommendation is very clear with a particular test that has been shown to be very sensitive to information processing speed because we know that slowed processing speed is perhaps the one feature that we see even early on in the disease. And so that's recommended at baseline. At a, as a minimum, it's recommended for all adults and for children eight years and older. And what's also recommended is an annual reassessment with the same instrument as needed or as needed. It could be more frequent so that there can be measurements at regular periods in time so that people can be followed and you can document cognitive change over a period of time. So we thought that that was critically important as well. And these things are not being done. In addition to that, you know, depression is also very important because a lot of times depression can either mask cognitive impairments or, or, or contribute to cognitive impairments. So the recommendations are also for an annual screening with, uh, of depression for adults and for uh, children. And lastly, in terms of assessment, if in fact there is found to be clinically meaningful change or decline, then a more comprehensive evaluation is required and is really needed to see what's really going on with the patient. So in a nutshell, those are the assessment requirement guidelines that are being uh, made by this paper. So what happens next? Um, What has to occur for these guidelines, which make so much sense uh, for these guidelines to be adopted as uh, a protocol? You know, it's going to be really tough because you're going to go from, like I said, about half the clinics doing nothing with cognition with now these clinics having to at least do these annual assessments. And so I think the, the, the clinicians are going to have to find a way in their very busy schedules and their busy assessments to make sure that this happens. But what, what, what's important is that it's time to do this. We've known now for, like I say, three or four decades that these cognitive problems not only exist, but they have significant impacts on everyday life. So the clinics, the neurology offices have to begin to do this. 
Now, there are many challenges to this, and some of which may be insurance coverage, some of which may be, well, who is going to do the assessment? Who's properly trained? Is there anybody available in remote regions of the country who may be able to do this? So these will all be challenges, but these are challenges we have to accept and find. So I think that it's, that that these clinics are going to find that because this is a recommendation, excuse me, for by the National MS Society, that it's time for this to happen. Well, I'm going to be sure to add a link to the guidelines themselves so that our listeners can go ahead and take them with them when they go in for their appointment and talk about them with the clinician that's treating them. Dr. DeLuca, thank you for working to shine a light on a symptom of MS that is so prevalent and can have such a personal and profound impact on individuals and families, yet is getting overlooked and too often untreated. And thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of Real Talk MS. Don't forget to visit the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and download the Real Talk MS app for your iOS or Android smartphone or device. It's absolutely the easiest way for you to connect to the podcast. And I hope you take a moment in the next seven days to visit realtalkms.com and check the MS Congressional Report Card for your elected representatives in Washington. Check their grades to see whether they're acting on your behalf and vote accordingly. My name is John Strum. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.